You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV focused at the Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And uh, joining me as usual is the principal of ITK, uh, David Lynch. David, um, I trust you are well. Well, it's a hot day here in Sydney, uh, but my solar driven air conditioning is working, Giles, so I'm well (laughs) enough and... Now, are you sure it's being powered by the um, by solar power? You haven't got sort of um, sun going behind the trees and sort of drawing on the grid and the big, great big coal-fired power station just up the road from you? I have Enphase micro inverters, uh, so whatever <laughs> sun is available uh, will be working on the panels. Thanks very much, Giles. But rather than my personal situation, as interesting as it is to me, uh, I suspect uh, listeners would be uh, more pleased to hear what our ex- distinguished guest today has to say. Well, yes, but you never underestimated the fascination with people about what people are actually doing at home and what they put in and why and how it works and everything like that. But as you say, we've got a very good guest for this week, um, Mark Collette. He's the CEO of um, Energy Australia, a subsidiary of the um, international um, or the Hong Kong-based CLP. They released their annual results earlier this week, and uh, a week or so ago, they held a little ceremony for the opening of their Talawara B uh, gas-fired generator, and we thought it would be a good time to catch up and have a chat about the transition in general. So here's our conversation with Mark Collette. Mark Collette, uh, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks, Giles. Great to be here. Lot to talk about, particularly with the release of your um, annual results, and uh, an awful lot happening in the uh, energy markets at the moment. But look, let's start off with your announcement from just a week or so ago, the opening of the Talawara B uh, gas-fired power station. Um, this is a reasonably interesting thing for you guys. Um, a couple of things struck me about that. One um, was the fact that you are sort of building a new gas-fired peaking plant, and the second bit was about the hydrogen component and the difficulties in even getting sort of five percent hydrogen but why don't you just all start by telling us exactly what Talawara B is going to be doing um, it sounds to me like sort of like this sort of um, it's just another sign be it with batteries or picking plant about this sort of gradual or accelerating shift from essentially base load to sort of flexible generation absolutely I think that's the the key point here Charles for, for us Talawara B is a 320 megawatt open cycle gas turbine that we are configuring to run on hydrogen. We'll start at 5% hydrogen. We've got a, uh, a a planning approval in with the New South Wales government to enable that, and we're we're in market seeking to access that hydrogen to at least kick off um, kick off hydrogen as a, as a future fuel. Before hydrogen comes, though, we expect to run on gas for some time um, because the hydrogen industry is still developing. And the role that we're seeking Talawara B to play is all around flexible capacity. So what does that mean? It means predominantly two things. It means, firstly, there are periods of very high demand, be it summer or winter, where a fast start machine like Talawara B can come on within 30 minutes 
to full load at 320 megawatts of capacity and supply 180,000 homes in New South Wales with power during those periods. And then equally important, it can turn off and get out of the way when there's lots of uh, solar and wind energy about. And that goes to your point about flexible capacity replacing replacing baseload, we see whether it's a battery or a pumped hydro or a fast start gas turbine turning into a hydrogen turbine, all of these technologies are fundamentally about um, enabling more renewables by having something that can turn on quickly during periods of low supply, uh, but also get out of the way during periods of high supply. Mm. Oh, you call it fast start and you say you can get it to full capacity within half an hour, but I mean, I guess the batteries these days can do that um, much quicker than that. Um, how competitive can they be in this market when you've got sort of, you know, increasing numbers of batteries coming in who can respond in, in sort of seconds? Well, it's a, it's a mix and it's a portfolio, Giles. So we, we absolutely see batteries as a, a big part of the portfolio. And last year, our partner Edify Energy commissioned Darlington and, and Riverina batteries, 90 megawatts, two-hour storage. And as you say, they can come on within, uh, within seconds and they provide a very important role. For us, those have two hours of storage. There are periods, even like today, it's quite warm in New South Wales today, and um, for looking at the duration of storage it's required, uh, it's more useful to be longer than two hours. So something like gas turning into hydrogen has the opportunity to be effectively not limited by the number of hours by which it can run, and that's, uh, that's quite useful during periods of low supply, particularly in winter in the future. Mm. Now, you talked about the hydrogen component, and you said the the, the goal is five percent hydrogen. And I think the original idea was twenty twenty five, and um, I wasn't able to attend the opening. But I saw from some of your comments that you're suggesting that even that's going to be quite hard to obtain. And I was look, I was a bit surprised by that. I mean, is the hydrogen industry just not developing? Are there just no electrolyzers being planned to be installed? Um, what's the what's the hold up here? Because we hear in South Australia, maybe because that's a government owned project that they building a 100% hydrogen power plant that they hope to have operating by 2026. So what's the issue in New South Wales? Why couldn't you even find 5%? Well, we've been in market with a number of potential suppliers. And, and look, as you're probably aware, New South Wales has this, um, this concept of hydrogen hubs. And the idea of a hydrogen hub is that it's a hub where sellers and buyers come together. And our role in the Illawarra hub is to act as a, as a buyer to create demand. And it starts with Talawarra B, which can do 5% uh, hydrogen from 2025, um, but it also extends into Talawarra A. So we have a, gas, a second gas turbine at the Talawarra site, Talawarra A, combined cycle gas turbine, currently 440 megawatts. We're doing an ex a efficiency upgrade this year, which will allow that machine to produce 480 megawatts, but also burn 37% of hydrogen. And as you'd imagine, put the two of those two together and um, we started to create a significant potential demand source for hydrogen. We are reliant on the supply industry developing. There have been a number of projects that have been doing feasibility studies and considering how to um, how to produce the hydrogen and transport it and, um, and sell to us. Part of, I think, the challenge at the moment um, falls back to the, the speed at which renewables are being added uh, to the system overall. In somewhere like South Australia, already a very high proportion of installed renewable energy. Um, some of the other states, all of the other states, are not progressing in line with their original plans. And um, you can see that there's a a choice to be made at the policy level about does renewable energy replace coal first or does renewable energy, um, is it used to produce hydrogen as a, as a priority? And I suspect what um, what's emerging is a preference for the renewables to replace coal 
um, which may mean that the renewables to generate hydrogen might um, end up being a little bit slower. Now I'm hopeful that um, one doesn't have to uh, obscure the other and that with the current focus on uh, unlocking um, the rate of renewable energy through things like the Commonwealth's Capacity Investment Scheme, um, that, uh, that we can do both. That's, that's certainly my, my hope and ambition. Mark, I, I'd like to talk about the sustainability of Energy Australia earnings and um, um, in the medium term. And I'd like to get into that by first of all asking about the results and, and, and issues that there are at the moment. And, and then how you plan to evolve from today to the future. And uh, could I start by asking, uh, I guess, about the retail business, which had a tough year. Is, is that likely to be a, um, a, a new lower level of earnings, sort of semi-permanent or uh, compared to history, or, or is that just an adjustment uh, uh, through tariffs and, 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 and costs? On the starting with our retail business, the way I'd, I'd sort of start you there is just to, to reference that the retail market has changed a lot over the past uh, past decade, and it's perhaps easiest to see in the ACCC reports on the electricity retailing industry. And if you look at the latest report that was released in December, uh, you'll note that the margins across the entire industry have decreased quite markedly from um, high single digits down to down to very low single digits. And the impairment the, that we uh, announced in on January 30 reflected that there has been a systemic change in market in margins across the industry, and we we were planning for a lower margin future than at the time that we bought the retail businesses in 2005 and 2012, and um, that's the world that we're now playing for. And um, as you'd imagine, lower margin world, um, we focus on how do we thrive through that lower margin world. Part of it is uh, taking advantage of the technologies that are out there to deliver the lowest cost energy to customers, which leads to our strategic focus, which is on integrating behind the meter solutions with the grid, bringing the best of the small scale technologies and the large scale technologies together to give the lowest cost delivered energy to customers. And from the perspective of uh, us making a profit as well along the way, um, it relies on us doing that quite intelligently and efficiently, making best use of all the digital and other technologies to stitch that package together. Yes, uh, there are any. There are a couple of things around that. I, I, before I before I come back to the generation, I, I do want have one more retailing question, not normal on this podcast, and that's just about the gas uh, retail volumes, which I noticed had had quite a drop. Uh, is that temporary or permanent? And could you just talk for uh, briefly about that? Absolutely. On the gas side of things, we're seeing a drive towards electrification. One of the interesting features about that is it's really hard to tell how much is electrification and how much is, is weather or how much is, uh, is conservation of energy because it's a tough co cost of living environment. Uh, we think there would be merit in uh, exploring as a market how there can be more signs of electrification made available to the market. Um, and as I say, we think there's an element of that that is coming through the numbers, but it's, uh, we can't tell how big it is just yet. So mix of both short and longer term phenomena there, uh, noting that we do expect electrification to, uh, to accelerate over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I guess uh, you, you can probably find some products that will uh, assist customers. And, and if we had time, I would like to ask about those quite a lot. But I want to come on to the 
generation business. I, th- I, th- I mean, your lawn is, is uh, uh, targeted for closure and that's well accepted in 2028. And I don't imagine there's any great change to that. I think it's also fair to say that Mount Piper has had coal supply issues of one sort or another and uh, contracts, I think, run out in a year or two. And, and you know, that makes Mount Piper's future, uh, uh, perhaps you want to talk about it, it's become a lot more flexible. But I, I'm wondering, basically, you also announced in the results that uh, there's a target of three gigawatts of uh, renewable energy, and I'm talking energy, not not batteries here, uh, by 2030. I guess, what's the overall plan to replace the, the, the coal volumes um, uh, by the time we get to 2030 and, and, and still be making some good money? Absolutely. We, like all of the industry, are participating in the energy transition. For us, what it means is that it's a cold of renewable shift um, with flexible capacity to, uh, to, to enable and firm the renewables. In terms of what that means specifically for us, for your lawn, it does mean closure in 2028. And our focus with your lawn is on having the most reliable and, uh, and best path to, to deliver that closure and the transition that comes to the Latrobe Valley off the back of that. Our plans have not changed there. They're, they're going, um, we're, we're on track and we're, uh, we're making the progress that we need to to deliver that outcome and deliver it well. With Mount Piper, longer, longer time frame. Uh, so we are planning into the 2030s. We have announced a closure date by 2040. But in our Climate Transition Action Plan last year, we also spoke to the role of Mount Piper changing quite significantly and becoming much more uh, a flexible coal generator where we expect into the 2030s in particular, we'll just turn off for periods of time and turn on when they're when effectively long duration storage um, is required. And that's the way we start to think about Piper. That does rely on access to coal. And uh, we do have coal contracts in place, which are quite flexible. Um, They are firstly varied in the supply sources that we get. So we get some diversity of, of of fuel supply to enable fuel security, um, which which helps set up that position where we can run a lot less as the renewables come forward and um, and enable that with the fuel supply. More broadly, that's uh, those comments are all about the retirement of coal. But as we all know, we've got to build the new system uh, in order to enable that to happen well, so that we deliver affordable, reliable, and uh, zero carbon energy uh, to customers. And on that front, our focus in the near term has been on um, ensuring that we are investing sufficiently in the flexible capacity, the Tullawarra Bees, the Darlington and Riverina battery, the Warren battery in Victoria, the Kidston pumped hydro in, in Queensland, in accessing all the flexible capacity and storage that we know is absolutely required to run a very high renewable energy system. We did uh, announce also in our Climate Transition Action Plan last year that um, we do have that, that target of the three gigawatts operating and in construction by, uh, by 2030. And our default approach there is to buy the energy. Um, that is our default approach. We will explore on a case-by-case basis whether it makes sense to uh, undertake other models, which could include our direct participation in projects. Uh, it's very much a case-by-case uh, by consideration. And, uh, and our focus is wind. 
And our focus is wind largely because we think the harder problem to solve, and we're attracted by the harder problems to solve, is winter rather than summer. And um, off the back of that, we think wind has more of a contribution to play for uh, for winter. Yeah, Mark, I, I, I you know, uh, I think it's clear that Energy Australia does seem to have a, a, a um, be attracted to harder problems to solve. <laughs> You've got a few, um, like we all do. Uh, and I just my final question before I hand back is really because I don't think three gigawatts will fully replace the output. Uh, but my final question is the capacity investment scheme. And if I assume it's successful, uh, what does that actually mean for Energy Australia? How do you plan to uh, approach the CIS? Will, do you, will you be looking to write secondary contracts you know, for, for, for the output or participate directly? Can, is there anything you'd like to say about that? Uh, firstly, I'd say that on the scale of the transformation ahead, we do not plan to completely replace all of the generation that we currently have. And part of the reason for that is that while we're one of the bigger players, um, the scale of the energy transition is absolutely huge in the tens of billions of dollars. And our balance sheet is, is not that big. And in that context, we do see a mix of direct investment and contracting um, at a scale that our balance sheet supports is, um, is quite important. And as our balance sheet grows, um, either through uh, performance of the business and or attracting a partner into some of the projects or more broadly into the activities that we undertake, um, then we may well review uh, the rate of progress and the rate at which we make investments and, and grow the business. That all said, uh, the capacity investment scheme that the federal government has announced is certainly um, it's certainly a game changer in the size uh, of what it is seeking to achieve with the 32 gigawatts across renewable energy and capacity. In the short term, uh, we are focused on bidding in the Warreen and, uh, and Hallett batteries into the Victoria and South Australian capacity element of that scheme. And uh, we are exploring our opportunities to participate more broadly. As I mentioned, we do start from a perspective of we'll tend to buy the renewable energy and we might well end up with quite a few contracts that are complementary to the capacity investment scheme and um, allow renewable developers to, to take advantage of both. We may end up with direct participation in the capacity investment scheme through a direct role in some of the projects. It's still relatively early days on understanding fully how that scheme will, uh, will operate, but we're seeing it as an opportunity uh, to accelerate our participation in the energy transition um, along the lines of what the government is trying to achieve, which is accelerating the clean energy transformation itself. So I guess the question about the uh, the batteries, you know, you mentioned Wareen and the um, and the Hallett battery in South Australia, and they bid into this capacity investment scheme. So will they get built? Will you reach final investment decision if they don't? If they're not successful in 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 landing an underwriting contract, or will that have, you'll just have to sort of cross that bridge when you when you get to it, I suppose. Oh, look, as you say, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I mean, we're very confident that we have some outstanding um, battery sites. One of the emerging issues, just to, to sort of expand on that, one of the emerging issues is the rate at which constraints are arising within the grid. And um, that mm. is affecting a lot of existing battery projects which are um, in places where the grid is not so strong. 
our sites, whether it's Waureen in the Latrobe Valley or the Mount Piper site, which is great for batteries, or Newport here in Victoria or Hallett, they're all in very strong places of the grid, which means that the batteries that we install are, um, are unlikely to be constrained in just about any situation. And in that sense, they're extremely good batteries that we, we expect will come to fruition. Exact timing we'll work through. Yeah, it's funny to think of a battery being constrained by network network constraints, but um, I guess um, that does happen for the same reason that sort of generators are constrained. Um, the um, just a little point of clarification too about the three gigawatts that you're planning um, for renewables by 2030, and, and and David touched on this. You know, it's it's um, is that three gigawatts what Energy Australia intends to build, or is it sort of um, a mix of you build and contract, or is it three gigawatts plus we might contract more um, because of the limitations of your balance sheet? Our ambition is three gigawatts that we're participating in. So whether that's contract or direct participation in projects, it's, it's three gigawatts that we've okay. uh, contributed to coming into existence. Mm. But yeah, okay. One of the big things at the moment is discussion in New South Wales over the closure of the Araring um, coal-fired power generator. These discussions are going on and on and on, and we're now only about sort of 15, 16 months away from the uh, from the planned closure date. Um, you came to a similar agreement, well, you came to an, an agreement with the Victorian government over your lawn, but I guess we, we weren't hearing, that, that was a will in advance. Um, what are your observations about um, the uncertainty now? I mean, I think you've actually sort of made comments to the media this week that uh, we're supposed to know three and a half years in advance um, about closures, and we've got a, um, an anticipated closure, but 16 months out, we still don't know whether it's going to close completely, partially, or not at all. And um, I think you suggested that this is actually having an investment, an impact on, on your investments. It's a very curious situation that the intent of a three and a half year notice period was to give clarity, and we've ended up in a situation where there's more speculation about the future of, of a roaring, and, uh, and we don't appear to have that clarity as to as and when a roaring uh, will close. In that environment, I mean, the announced closure date is August uh, 2025. And in the absence of, of anything being announced, that's, that's certainly what we, uh, what we plan for. Um, but it, our view more generally is that it would be more helpful to the market, both for investors in assets coming in and for uh, people like us who have some transition assets which need to be around for a period and then come out it's more helpful if there's a pathway that's credible that does not um, lead to lots of speculation about will it change, will it not change. And in, in that sort of context, that's why we flagged with Mount Piper that we saw that role of moving to a reserve generator, moving to a, a backup generator in the 2030s. And we'd really like for that to become clear through policy mechanisms how that would work and that it would work with lots of lead time so that there is no lack of clarity about what will happen. And, and, and that of course turning um, Mount Piper into a flexible generator as you describe it would, that changes the whole business model of sort of you know what we understand to be based on coal generators so what you're saying is that you're going to need some sort of government support or some sort of policy mechanism that actually sort of supports that transition from, from being a base load chugging away at a certain um, a percentage to sort of switching on and off because that sort of changes the whole economics of the project, doesn't it? And, 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 and before I hand back to David, if I can just throw in a supplementary question to that, I mean, do you think Araring should get money from the New South Wales government to stay open? Moving coal to be a capacity play rather than an energy play absolutely changes the economics. And um, it's still, still difficult to say exactly 
what those economics will look like and whether there will be adequate market signals to support that ongoing economics. Uh, we certainly see that there is enough uncertainty to justify a policy conversation about, well, if the market doesn't work, how does that role come to be? And it only needs to come to be enough for the asset to be um, available during the period in which governments and the market operators say that, um, that it, uh, it, it is likely to be required. And that's the objective here. And that's the way I think about ARARing. Um, it's very much down to the uh, down to AEMO and to advise the New South Wales government and for New South Wales government to form a view on whether it's required in a reserve capacity for a period of time. Um, I do look at it and think um, and look at the energy flows that are coming into the New South Wales and the national electricity market more generally. And uh, it does look like that the, the, the case that could be made around a rowing is more around a reserve role where it's available for some times of the year um, to, to, to act in that Piper style of operation rather than an, than an always on role. It looks, looks very much um, like the case for reserve is stronger. Camp, campaign style, I think, rather than flexible. Flexible implies available but not operating, and campaign is uh, available seasonally. Uh, and I think for these uh, big coal assets that need to be uh, take time to restart, that that's a, a better way of thinking about it. Um, um, and and I, I, my personal view, which I've ex written about, is that it's Origin's problem as much as the uh, Emo's problem. Origin hasn't signed the contracts to replace, in my opinion, to replace the uh, output that it gets from Araring, but that's not uh, not your worry, Mark, directly anyway. What I wanted to ask more broadly is the impact of uh, your lawn closing. I've heard comments from, uh, um, I mean, because the fact is that uh, uh, Victorian electricity prices for various reasons, including transmission, constrained transmission, and because brown coal has low variable costs, uh, uh, and therefore operates a lot. Electricity prices in Victoria are much lower than in New South Wales and Queensland. And I've heard views from experienced people that this is structural and likely to remain even after the closure of your lawn. But I just wondered if you, in your thinking, what you thought about the, the medium-term outlook for Victorian consumers and electricity prices. Victoria historically has been the lowest cost energy in the national electricity market and the gas market as well. It's been based on fossil fuels and it's been carbon intensive and we all know that needs to change and so the transition's underway. Um, if I look at the future of the, the Victoria's energy production versus other states, um, as and when Victorian brown coal um, comes out, then the wind in Victoria and the sun in Victoria are not necessarily better than the other states. And um, in that context, if you're looking at relative advantages, it looks like the relative advantage of, of Victoria may, may well reduce compared to, uh, compared to the past. Yeah, and so that uh, I would argue that in fact, Victorian prices uh, may well rise, but even as the transmission comes on, uh, like VNI West and, and Humelink and uh, you know Energy Connect from South Australia can get to New South Wales directly, or those things will start to influence. But that's my personal view. But you make a, uh, also a very interesting point about the relativities of Victoria and Queensland. Uh, I spend a lot of time uh, studying 
that using AEMO's excellent wind and solar half-hourly database. And it does seem to me, I've said for years, that Queensland uh, is a better place uh, to produce, to, to run stuff on wind and solar than Victoria. Although if you add it in Tasmania, which has a great resource, and Tasmania's hydro, and the hydro from the Snowies, then uh, Victoria might not need such a good quality wind and solar resource. But from Energy Australia's point of view, you're relatively Victorian-focused and New South Wales-focused. Uh, I just wondered how you were thinking strategically about having an M-wide portfolio and, and that sort of stuff. Look, they're all, they're all things that go through our heads. And uh, as you say, we have customers in Victoria and New South Wales. So despite the natural advantages of one state over the other, we, our job is still to uh, supply those customers with the lowest cost of, of power that we, we possibly can. Um, that does mean that we will explore what are the benefits of doing things in Queensland or South Australia and what benefit does that bring to Victoria or New South Wales. Um, and it does mean looking at uh, the Indigenous options as well. Um, I, I do sort of start at the very high level um, around the comparative advantages of states. But as you say, there are so many factors in energy around transmission, around storage technologies, around um, the load profile, and all of those, um, those need to come together in a way that, uh, that just works. And it's quite, um, it's, while we, we like to talk about the future, it, it, no one gets it right. And all of the forecasts about what would happen when Hazelwood closed or when, um, other things have happened in energy markets. Uh, no one is actually very good at predicting exactly what will happen. And 2022 was a great example of um, the, the market gave no sign that that was about to happen. Um, so we certainly plan for a breadth of portfolio supply and solutions and, um, and acknowledge that it's likely to be a mix of everything that gives the best answer nationally. Yeah, I agree about the predictions, but uh, we have to people people like hearing them, even though they mostly turn out to be wrong. I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but I also wanted to uh, ask generally um, about how market consolidation and EAs sort of uh, um, a year or so ago it was said that you were looking for partners to fund your uh, transition, EA's transition, never mind Australia's. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think you have the balance sheet to, to do it yourself or whether you still think there are uh, maybe advantages in, 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 in the market and whether the market you know, uh, can, can change from EA's perspective in terms of who's doing what. Absolutely, we see partnerships are really important for us. Sometimes those partnerships are contracts, as as with uh, with GenX and Edify Energy. Sometimes they will be uh, more direct and involve equity and project finance and things of that nature. Um, and we we expect to have quite a few different models and structures that will continue to deploy, so that we can uh, we can continue to grow while using our balance sheet and the balance sheets of others. Um, I know you, you're, you're very time-pressed and we need to wrap up, but I've just got one last question, Mark, and it's kind of just like what Energy Australia looks like in the future. I mean, you've talked about your plans for large-scale renewables and it's three gigawatts by 2030, and I guess David's probably made the point about, well, is that enough to replace the, the generation that you currently produce from you know, your coal-fired generators? Um, we've also talked about the competition in the retail business and you've taken some write-downs um, in this um, last financial year or last calendar year. We're seeing the increased uptake of um, 
of um, consumer energy resources, you know, rooftop solar, um, electric vehicles has kind of concentrated people's minds on what their options are now on uh, things like batteries and more solar panels and things like that. So basically, more other people are producing stuff. Um, where does that leave a big utility like Energy Australia in, in a future grid, one largely, to, well, not largely, but sort of, you know, at least half or maybe half dependent on, on, um, on consumer resources? What role and, and, and what is, is it a diminished role? Is it, um, how, are you, how are you seeing that? Because I guess that's one of the big questions of how do these big traditional utilities morph to adapt and connect to the markets, the consumers and the technologies of the future? The energy transformation means there's an energy transformation and companies like us around the world are looking at the future and saying it's going to be markedly different to the past. For us, we look at the closure of your lawn in four years' time and your lawn has been a, was the bedrock investment that CLP made when they entered our parent company when they entered Australia back in 2001. And so when you take that out of our business, our business fundamentally changes. And so exactly as you are saying, the what we are focused on is building the new Energy Australia, the Energy Australia that integrates all of the different supply sources, and there are a lot more of them from rooftop solar to wind, solar, pumped hydro, batteries, small, big, uh, batteries in the home, batteries in the distribution grid, batteries in the transmission grid. There's just a lot more interactivity and, and um, things to balance and manage. And we see our role fundamentally as starting with customers and making the energy transition simple for them amid all of that complexity about having to put all the bits together. There are lots of people who are good at individual bits, which might be uh, putting together a wind project or developing a battery project. Um, there are less who focus on um, stitching it all together in a way that gets the best possible outcome for the customer. And doing that, not just in the traditional role around um, taking the wholesale energy and, and selling it to customers, but also working out how to get the best value from behind the meter, um, behind the meter batteries in network services, for example. We know that networks could continue to invest in the stationary grid, and that could be one way that customers are supplied with energy. It just means that they probably don't get the full value of putting um, behind the meter energy solutions in their home in avoiding some of the network infrastructure that can be, be supplied effectively in the home and business. That's the sort of role that we see ourselves on behalf of customers stepping into to, uh, to get them the best possible outcome through this transition. It does involve some big commitments to big batteries and big pumped hydro and big wind and um, things of that nature. But a huge part of it is actually starting with the customer load and making sure that we start with the best of the small-scale technologies and integrate that with the large-scale technologies. But I'd have to say, Giles, that we haven't solved that yet. I haven't seen any company yet in the world who's managed to put together that future offering. And the way we look at it, yes, there's some things that you look at and say, well, the world's changing. That's a bit, um, uh, that's a bit scary, and it is, but it's also it's a massive opportunity. The way we look at it is we can be the first of the, of the gen tailors of the old world to turn into something that actually makes the energy transition simple for customers in the new world. I think that is the way to look at it, uh, and I think there'll always be a role for big integrated companies, but, but, but not easy. Th thanks very much, Mark. 
Yeah, it's an interesting observation too. Just just one final sort of gratuitous remark, um, possibly, is that um, you're talking about making it simple and, and, and removing the complexity. But I think there was a bit of an old um, um, description about sort of confusion as profit in the energy industry. And <laughs> do you really want to change that as, as, as well? But um, it's a it's a cultural thing as much as a technology and business model thing, anyway. Um, Maybe I should just leave it at that, Mark, unless you want to say <laughs> anything to that. But uh... Look, I, I, I get where you're coming from. Energy is more complicated than people. When, you ha when I have a conversation at a barbecue, people say, well, what about this and what about that? Like, and I give uh, an answer of how the energy industry works. They're like, oh, wow, that's, um, yeah, can you explain that again? And ultimately, I think most, most, most of the people I talk to at barbecues are like, just make that easier. Um, your job, Mark, is to make sure that the things that I have in my house work with the grid so I get the lowest cost of energy and uh, we, we meet the goal of not just net zero, but absolute zero at a point in time. Um, and I think that's a pretty exciting goal. I think the the master is the, someone who can make the complex look very simple. You know, like in sport, it's so obvious. Someone who has a perfect golf swing, it just looks so easy. Yes, well, it's not going to be me in sport, but I hope it's us in energy. That's yeah. the goal. There you go. Look, I do feel like we've just sort of started the conversation. There's so much more to talk about, about how that transition will actually take place and um, all the different hurdles in front of it. But um, Mark Collette, um, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders um, podcast once again. Pleasure. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks. And that was uh, Mark Collett from Energy Australia. David, um, what kind of leapt out to you uh, about that? It was an interesting discussion and, and one I would have loved to have continued for another half an hour because you sort of feel like you're just sort of scratching the surface of these things. Um, but um, but I thought it was pretty interesting for a number of different reasons. But what what what, um, what leapt out to you? Well, I should say I went down to, I, I was kindly given a tour of Talawara B last year just, just uh, prior to it starting uh, testing. And it's, you know, it's a conventional but useful gas-fired power station. Uh, look, what leapt out to me is the challenge to the traditional gentailers of, of making this transition successfully. It's very hard for them to replace their their coal earnings. I mean, they and frankly, none of them are doing anything rapidly to do it. They're all focusing on building uh, firming capacity, like batteries. Every one of them. That's what's going on. And so it's a bit irritating to have people like, uh, say, Jeff Dimery at Alinta saying that uh, uh, you know there's not going to be enough wind and solar uh, when, to an extent, they're the guys that could have done a lot more to to make it happen and have. Uh, done absolutely nothing in recent times. But I do agree with Jeff that if you compare the historic low cost of uh, uh, brown coal to consumers and compare that with the cost of offshore wind, as we discussed last week, uh, I think that's a difficult position for Victoria. What, what leapt out for, to you, Giles? Well, look, it's just that, um, that um, I'm, I'm just sort of fascinated by his talks. Well, look, one, his observations about Araring were particularly interesting, as were his preferred outcome for Mount Piper. And I'd imagine that um, he's keeping a very close watch on Araring because whatever they get, then he wants to for, for Mount Piper, um, probably over a different time period. And this, this idea of... Um, of, of coal-fired generators um, acting in reserve, um, sort of coming off the bench when needed in hot days like today, although it'll be interesting to see exactly how much they would be needed. Jeff, I, uh, Giles, I don't think it can work exactly like that. I, I think if you, you know, you've got all these maintenance workers, you're not going to be, and uh, you're not going to be keeping those workers on all the time. It won't be just on a day with one day's notice. If you, if you close a coal-fired power station down, uh, like for months at a time, and then you'll 
give everyone a month's notice that you're going to start it up again for winter or something like that. I, I suspect, and Queensland has the same kind of plan, but I suspect that the uh, price is going to be a big problem for these guys as soon as we start getting some more wind and solar supply. And I want to, you know, there are seven gigawatts of utility wind and solar under construction right now. And that will take us over 50% renewable. It's absolutely certain within two years uh, of today and probably sooner, uh, depending on how quickly it's commissioned. And there's five gigawatts of batteries uh, being built right now. Five gigawatts. I don't have the duration number in front of me. And that's all going to compete uh, in the price for, for those evening price peaks. So I think there's a lot of signs that both volume and price uh, are going to be coming down within a couple of years. And we saw that the futures market is showing some indications of that already. Well, then, in that case, it's sort of interesting because you've got the three utilities sort of talking about wanting to have contracts to sort of keep their coal-fired generators operating in some form or another, be it reserves or seasonal reserve or, or, or whatever. Um, as you point out, they're not building enough capacity to replace their, their own thing. So, in, in, in effect, that they're sort of contributing to the delays in the transition. Um, that's probably because they're still trying to get their mind around the transition and how their business models actually um, sort of what they look like in the future. Um, I would have thought that the more they let other players contract to their big customers and the more that households put in rooftop solar and um, EVs and battery storage and things like that, then the more their powerful position in the market is eroded and the more difficult it becomes for them to strike a sensible business model. Am I, am I dreaming or am I? No, no, I think that's, that's pretty right. Both of those trends, disintermediation of, of, uh, at, at the big business end of town, thanks to direct PPAs, uh, to use a lot of jargon, between, between customers, uh, whether it's an aluminium smelter or a One Steel or a Woolworths a, a, and a renewable uh, producer. So that's cutting out one end. But I, they don't really care about that because the margins in that business are pretty skinny. Uh, what, where they do care about is the retail margin and the retail volume. And, you know, you asked what jumped out at Energy Australia's results. That was the, how disappointing overall the retail results were in both gas and electricity. And the fact that they, um, they took a big write down on the goodwill of that. Uh, and, and none of the Gentailers has really yet got uh, found a way to, to make the uh, household with rooftop solar and perhaps a battery uh, a kind of profitable thing for a retailer. But, Giles, from the system's point of view, we are coming up to a crunch point in that because as more and more rooftop solar is built, uh, and we, uh, we are going to run into this problem of something's going to get spilt. We're going to have excess supply at lunchtime. We already do. We're going to have a lot more of it. And someone is going to have to pay for that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how that's going to work out, but I do think it's a bigger and bigger issue. And as I keep saying every week, it, would, it could be helped if there were more like uh, uh, household storage or something. And I think that the big gentailers could take their customers in, in Victoria uh, off gas to some extent and uh, maybe with some government help fund them into a battery uh, and we might all live happily ever after. 
Well, that sounds very cheerful. Um, look, just on that um, note about um, about the households and engaging with the households, there was an interesting um, rule change proposed by the Australian Energy Market Commission came through this week. Got some very nice flowery um, observations from some of the mainstream media, which they gave it to first. Um, we've had a good look at it, and we do question it because it seems to be sort of so much of a typical story about the Australian energy revolution. It's sort of like a nice idea, but only half done, incremental change rather than wholesale change where it's needed so in effect it allows metering of various sort of consumer devices particularly evs and other things to be separated from the other things but it doesn't allow increased competition to the household so it's kind of like more insight but more protection um or the same level of protection so you know the you know distributed energy um is really going to be so critical i think in this transition the way we manage that um and we don't want to go through what we were sort of risk doing about a decade ago which is basically pissing people off with the wrong size of tariffs and things like that and consumers as i've made the point before um now that they're buying electric vehicles they are like you incredibly interested in what happens in the house now in the household so they're thinking about electric vehicles because they've got to charge them every day or every second day or wherever often it is it's certainly more often than looking at a uh, quarterly electricity bill so they're thinking about these things quite actively and they're looking around at the choices and they want choice and they want options and they want the cheaper prices and that really is a call to action to the utilities but also the regulators and the rule makers um, basically to get the shit into gear and to, to to facilitate this transition rather than standing in the way of it and I just think that's really important point no it is uh the rooftop side of things it's still we don't have the answer in front of us uh from any of the stakeholders point of view except the household they at the moment the householder doesn't care <laughs> it just works for them and uh long may that continue but uh the, the, there is an issue about the integration and what one uh, there's an issue too with the role of uh we never talk enough about the distribution the wires and poles companies they are really as i've said a few times they are the own all the value, right? If you added up the value of all the generators and all the retailers, it wouldn't come within cooey of the value of all the wires and poles companies around the place. And they are regulated monopolies and they have very little incentive really to work as hard as they could to make this transition successful. And uh, yes. there's no rule maker that really sits on top of the whole thing. It's certainly not the Energy Security Board. It's obviously not AEMO. It's not really the AEMC, uh, and and there's no one designing the network at that from from that level. We've got the integrated system plan, but it doesn't really consist consider uh, anything below the transmission level. Well, it does a bit actually. I think it's a bit harsh, but I mean, people wanted to to consider a lot more, and it is very much focused on the transmission. But it is interesting about the sort of the level of DER or consumer energy resources that it is contemplating over the next ten or fifteen years. And look, just on distribution networks, I was actually sort of talking to someone the other day, having a cup of coffee with a developer, and they're just sort of pointing out some of the charges they get hit. You know, if we're even sort of charging up their battery, for instance, um, there's a battery going in a regional area, and um, they said they get absolutely clobbered by the sort of what they call the DUOS charges. So there's a heck of a lot of sort of rule changes and rulemaking and tariffs to be changed, whether it's on the sort of the local level or the um, utility scale level. Anyway, David, look, I think we've been rabbiting on. Just one other thing I'd like to mention, just following up from your observation that um, all those projects that in the pipeline are going to get us to 50% renewables um, within a year or two, which well, by next year, uh, which is fantastic. Um, still some way to go to 82% um, target set by the federal government. But I would observe also that the South Australian government 
has announced that it's fast-tracked its target of net 100% renewables from 2030 to 2027. Um, I'd just like to point out, though, that the South Australian target has never actually been a target. All it is is just basically an observation and reflection of what's already happening in the market. But look, South Australia did put out the welcome map for wind and solar, and now they're benefiting from it. They're at uh, 71% renewables over the last 12 months, 82% over the last quarter, and they realise now that with all Goida South, the Blythe Battery, and the other projects that are going in, they will reach net 100% renewables by 2027. So I just think that's worth noting and worth admiring um, because it is um, it is the path to the future. Yes, yes, indeed. And the uh, Project Energy Connect, which connects uh, South Australia with New South Wales directly, uh, will make a difference as well, particularly uh, if and when uh, HumeLink is, is added in and so that we can get the energy up to the uh, Sydney Demand Centre. And speaking of transmission, uh, I have to say I was disappointed in the Tasmanian ALP position that they, they just don't have any interest in Marinus Link. I mean, all the studies that I do indicate that Tasmania and Queensland and South Australia are absolutely vital pieces of, of a highly renewable NEM. And I'll, I'll be presenting some of my thinking about that at Smart Energy. I trust you're going to Smart Energy, Giles, and uh, yes, indeed. I want to give a plug for it. It's got a lot, a lot of people going. It, it has indeed, yeah. Oh, look, I would point out that Tasmania Labor, um, I don't think they w do not want to have the link, they just don't want to pay for it, they want somebody else to pay for it. So there's just a bit of a kerfuffle going out, sort of local politics, and it's pretty much sort of council level in in um, in, in the island. They should be proud to pay state. for it. They should be proud <laughs> to pay for it. They should be proud to do their bit and, and think a bit nationally instead of so terribly parochially. But anyway. Well, there you go. Um, parochial things will happen in a state election. Um Look, David, thank you very much uh, for your contribution. Thanks to Mark Collette from Energy Australia um, for joining us this week. I uh, do have a listen out to our other podcast, Solar Insiders is back. Uh, we've got a great interview with Stephanie Bashir um, from Nexa Advisory this week, talking about some of those CER and DER issues, which we um, sort of covered very briefly on this episode of Energy Insiders. And also the Switched On podcast had a fascinating um, interview with uh, Sarah Aubrey about her electrification journey and why she did it and what she's found. And um, they're great, um, they're great podcasts. I would recommend you listening to them. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. And um, we'll see you at Smart Energy Council Conference next week in Sydney. And we'll have another episode of Energy Insiders again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.